Welcome back, my friends, to the sweet spot where IT leaders share their insights with other IT leaders, others who want to leave. My name is Carlos Vargas, and as every week, I have my two co-hosts, Paul Lewis and Howard Holton. Hey, guys. Hey, hey there. Another week. Another What's week. You? Still depressing. <laughs> Can you believe I had to cancel my Disney vacation? It's still, it's reverberating on me right now. I don't know what to do. I now have to plan my, my March break, my spring break of next year. I got to get into that process. That'll take me a while. Uh, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. I don't know that, that the theme parks will be settled by then. No, I think we're going to do a cruise in, the, in Europe. I think that's our plan. I think we're going to get out of the Western Hemisphere and get a, see, see what other parts of the world look like by then. Yeah. It was interesting to see the um, the Bahamas. I think it was the Bahamas that said, um, "You know, we'll give you a one year a one year work from home visa to come work in and play in the Bahamas for a year." I yes, it was, was Barbados. Barbados, that's right. And I absolutely would take them up. They haven't been too detailed about it. They're going to release right. it in the next couple of weeks on what two weeks really means, and if it means a pretty significant discount in your lodging and like free Wi-Fi and you know full year visa. It might, there might be something to it. I don't. I, I don't necessarily disagree, um, but I, but I also haven't really seen squat for details. Yeah, they haven't come out yet. This is more of a tourism idea, but I, right. I, it sounds like something that would work to me. But it could add up, right? Like a year at a at a five star all inclusive is probably not something somebody can afford. No, it's it's probably a hundred grand. Like right. if we're being honest, right. And, and what do they get out of it? I don't know. I think they've got lots of stuff. Right? I think they get uh, certainly the newsworthiness of it. I think people are shopping there. People, other family members will come visit there. Um, <laughs> sounds like it's, a, it's an interesting ploy. Well, that will be an interesting story. <laughs> now then your kick. I went into Barbados and I spent a whole year. Uh, so then... How do you start that? Well, I, I think what's going to be interesting to see is not necessarily Barbados, but who's number two, hmm. right? Does the Dominican Republic, for instance, do they hop on? Does Puerto Rico come up with something? Do, 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 the, do the Bahamas come up with something? And then when we get out of kind of, you know, the, the, the Western Atlantic, right? What other locations really kind of start to step up and say, um, you know, our digital nomad policies and procedures should change because COVID opens up a whole new world, right? And what, what do companies do, right? If that starts to become a more pervasive thing, um, do companies start creating a, a digital nomad program? Hmm. Right? I, I actually think the whole, I, I don't know if you guys follow the digital nomad kind of lifestyle much at all, but I, f I find it to be really, really interesting. You know, we've talked a bunch about, about millennials on the, on the podcast mm -hmm. and how it's a different buying audience. But we, I don't think we've really ever gone into detail. And I realize this is not the topic that we discussed talking about today. Um, so it, it might be a really good time to pause and go, viewers, if you find that interesting, please let us know in the comments and we'll make it a topic. That's right. Out of spite, we're actually going to name this pod what the, what, the, what the purpose title is supposed to be. And they'll be surprised when they start it up. <laughs> we have done that before, I think. Right. Well, go ahead, <laughs> Howard. 
give us rant rant us up on the millennials all right so um so what what i find interesting about it is is first it's a it's a five two five right when we look at at generations we tend to have kind of three major generations that are um our consumers our workers our voters at any given time right the people the people in the workplace and the people in power power being the ability to vote um and and while we tend to break down generations in a roughly 20 year segment the reality is when we talk about generations in the way that i'm referring to them it's more like 40 years um so when we look to millennials, uh, the thing that's been interesting about them is throughout history, modern history, right? Um, we've all kind of maintained the same value chain. Um, I, I want uh, a job, a family, a house, a vehicle. Like those are the things that I want that, I that help to define my happiness, right? I want a little escapism from my home to go see something new and interesting, but it's generally three or four different locations, right? There's not a ton of people that have traveled to 90 or 100 different locations, certainly not on this continent. Right. We have, we have some relatively large bodies of water that keep us reasonably constrained. Um, but the, the, some of the biggest moments in our lives are um, getting married, having a child, and owning a home. Right, um, and I referred to the five two five a little bit ago, um, and that's specifically the baby boomers. There are five of them for every two of the kind of Gen X, which is the next big bucket, and then for Gen X's versus millennials. Millennials is also includes the generations that come after the people that come after. Um, there are five of them, mm -hmm. right? so five two five. And what right. that means is um, normally that kind of doesn't matter. Because if we all maintain the same value chain, you're going to see some waxing and waning in various economic systems, right? You're going to see there's a lot more homeowners in five than there are buyers in two. Right. But the next generation being five, it'll balance out. That's all assumes the value chain remains the same. Mm -hmm. But if the value chain changes and all of a sudden the edifices that we've built economic security on no longer hold the same economic security, what happens to those economic structures, right? What happens to the economic structure when millennials feel they can't afford homes and thus have no, have no attachment to that as a value chain? Hmm. Right? How does, that, how does that change economics? And, and if you think about it, it's actually huge because any, it's gonna, it will absolutely cause a drop in home values. Right? Whether we've seen it yet or not doesn't matter because most of the millennials and, and the kind of, you know, Gen Z that we see after that and, and the generations that we're seeing after that, like my kid, they're not old enough to be a home buyer yet anyhow. And yet when they look at it, they kind of universally have the same complaint. And that is homes are too expensive. It doesn't make any sense. Plus, I don't know that I want to live there forever. Right? Yeah, I, I kind of have that perspective as not a millennial. Or I'm kind of sick and bored of my house. I'd like to, I'd like to have a rented apartment, use that free money to sort of travel the world if I needed to. But my kids, not unlike yours, are getting up to the university age where I'm soon going to be, you know, just a couple versus a family, and then I'll have that free time anyway. Well, and then when they when you look at marriage, yeah. right? More and more and more millennials are foregoing marriage itself because they see it as another kind of failed edifice. They see a, an incredibly high divorce rate. 
whether that's in their localized system or or their kind of you know fan system, right? The, the the things we put on TV, the things we put in popular media, um, and and I'll be honest, when I say TV, I just mean popular media. So so the internet is is captured within that, right? But mm-hmm. but those things we popularize, we frequently see failure of the edifice of of marriage, right? And if you really think about it, do we need a uh, do we need a contract with the state to support those things that marriage is supposed to have? To support loyalty, to support the other person, to proclaim, pro- proclaim the love and desire to cohabitate with that person. We don't really need a contract with the state to do that. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, in a lot of cases, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure those of us who've been through divorce can definitely attest to that, the contract with the state adds a burden in the case that you know people change and, and people do change. There's, right. there's no two ways about it. I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. I don't think any of us are. Um, and to assume that that two people who cohabitate are, are going to have the same rate of change, the same rate of evolution, much less the same direction of change and evolution, doesn't necessarily resonate, right? Um, add on to that things like university, right? When a four-year education is $140,000 and there's no guarantee that you'll be able to pay off the student loans or make back the return on investment, is your is your money better invested elsewhere? Right. This is a big world, right? So uh, some of the things you said are very North American centric, potentially even very US centric. But if we look at more socialist environments or communist environments or just different cultural environments, I'm less sure it's exactly all those things, right? So I, so I think I the family the... unit is distinctly different around the world, especially different religions. Um, I think the uh, in a communist environment, you're probably not worried about voting, as an example, uh, <laughs> where there's they allow or don't allow sort of children or sort of a different a different pers- political perspective. Yeah, but but Maybe when we look all, at that's true. Yeah, but but let's look at at, at China as, as an example of a communist nation, right? There's a huge turn in the millennial generation away from the communist values, away from the communist belief, right? There's more of a push for underground information. There's a whole wave of um, kind of, for lack of a better term, Tiananmen Square accusers, um, where they're not is- accepting the established narrative, but instead have have dug into kind of Western media and brought that back to China, and it's spreading like a wave, yeah. like a wildfire. I agree politically, but I'm not sure that's changed the family unit. I'm not sure that's changed, you know, the desire no, but, to get but, married but and talking, have kids. You're talking yeah. about like 20 different things. Yeah, I was just commenting on your entire pitch and saying that's sure. that that might be a very North American centric total view. Yeah, I bet there's bits and pieces that are global in nature, but it, I I wouldn't say it's it's, it's all global in nature. Um, no, but what's interesting is when we look at millennials, we still we can actually still assign them very much the same kind of feature set, hmm. right? We can still see worldwide, globally, there's this breakdown of the standard value set. The value chain is very different outside, you know, within each uh, method of thought is, is kind of how I would put it, right? Um, in that how North America thinks is much closer to how Western Europe thinks rather than um, Asia, right, as an example, right? Um, yet it's much more common in, in Western Europe to have three or four generations of people living in the same address, much like Asia, than it would be in North America. Right. We're much more, much more independent. Um, but when we look to, you know, look at, at Israel, right? One of the big concerns in Israel is a sense of nationalism, a sense of patriotism, um, nationalism kind of being bad, patriotism kind of being good. But, but 
Israel is a country that, <clears throat> Israel is a nation that survives on its patriotism. It's a very small nation. It's stuck with people that don't acknowledge them, don't like them, don't support them. And right. they have been at war since the very moment they were declared a nation. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't look to be changing anytime in the future. We can all hope and pray, pray that it does, right? Um, I think everyone has the right to exist. But, but regardless, um, I don't live in the nation. I'm, I'm not part of either side. So I don't know that my opinion has a ton of weight. I don't know what, I, I don't know that my opinion can tell you what's right or wrong, other than I think peoples should be able to exist and find their home. Um, and yet when, when the Israeli, the people that are in power in Israel look to the next generation, what they're seeing is an incredible culture shift. What they've seen is an incredible culture shift. Every generation up to them and before always felt that they were Israeli. They belonged in Israel. Israel was a part of them. But when they look to their children or grandchildren, uh, the millennial generation and after, they don't see themselves that way. They don't support mandatory military service because they don't have the same feeling about Israel that their parents and grandparents did. They don't understand why we can't all get along. I don't really feel that much different than other people. And when you look to what they, what, where they do feel connected, where they do feel a sense of community, where they do feel that, which is kind of what we're supposed to get with patriotism, right? Um, mm -hmm. that, that sense of identity, uh, they, uh, millennials almost as a rule, see it in an online community rather than an in-person community. There are definitely people who are in-person that are part of that community, but even those will identify, oh, they're part of my online insert name of thing community here. Right. Um, and when you look to countries like Israel, that becomes a really, really, really difficult thing because they don't see themselves as Israeli. They see themselves as I belong to, and I'm going to use terms that are definitely closer to boomer than they are millennial, but, but I see myself as part of the, the, you know, call of duty community. I see myself as part of this Xbox live community. I see myself as part of this, you know, interest community in whatever the thing I'm interested in Minecraft or, or whatever it happens to be. Right. I'm a mm -hmm. fan of this thing and we have a community established around this thing. And therefore that's where that, that's how I associate myself. That's where I, what I connect myself to. The um, problem is those communities don't and can't act like governments, right? That, you know, they can't, they can't have, you know, a social network supporting them. You can't, you're not paying into them. You're not being taxed and therefore you're not receiving any, you know, goods and services beyond that. You can't look to Facebook to provide EI, right? There's no social security in TikTok, right? There, so sure. that's kind of the complexity there is that you need to have some sort of alignment to a democratic system to create that net for you, but at the same time belong to the to the to the virtual world so that you have everything else that you need in life. Right? So, I'm not advocating one yeah. way or the other, right? I'm I'm very much in agreement that that ultimately there's a loss, but it's also a loss of trust. Like that sort of thing comes from a loss of trust. I have no faith in whatever nation I belong to that that government has my best interest at heart and they don't belong to my generation, they don't have my values, they don't have my viewpoint, therefore I'm gonna recede into the communities of the do, mm -hmm. right? And it further kind of creates this us and them mentality, but, it, but it's highlighted by the economic systems that I'm being asked to participate in don't support my ability to be successful in the way previous generations do. The Delta, like we always complain about that. I think throughout history, we've always looked to our parents and our grandparents and gone, how did you, how were you able to achieve so much with so little? That's not possible today. Mm -hmm. And that does become harder and harder and harder every generation. And the perception 
And probably the reality is the largest delta ever is between Gen X and the millennial generation, hmm. right? We could in fact get away being self-taught and be very, very successful. And I would say, while you know, if, if, if I look and I'm gonna restrict it just to the US because I, I, those are the only statistics I actually know, right? <laughs> My, the matriculation rate of baby boomers was something in the five to 12% range, right? High school to college, college graduate. Yeah. Um, that didn't increase significantly for Gen X. I think it went up to 20 to 22%, right? And yeah. yet we were still able to maintain an economic system whereby we found success, whereby we purchased homes and did all the things sure. that- the explosion that, of the middle class, sure. Right, right. But look to Gen X or look to millennials and tell me the same can be true, hmm. right? How many master's degrees, and I don't care what the master's degree is, is in, how many master's degrees work at Starbucks? Right. How many, how many well-educated people are unable to find a, val a valuable and valid use for the degree? And to be honest, we sold the generation on the exact same thing we were sold on, which is any college degree has value, therefore get a college degree. Right. Absolutely, the sciences will pay more. However, every college degree has value. So don't worry so much about the degree, just worry about getting one, and then you can figure out what you want to do with your life. Right. Now it's kind of the opposite. We're, we're saying, uh, they don't really have value. Like there was this moment in, in right. um, the Mitt Romney, um, President Obama debate, they were um, doing like a town hall debate at a college and a yeah. college student got up and said, hey, we're being crushed under the unbearable weight of um, student loan debt. Do you have a plan to deal with that? Because right. that's the thing that I'm most concerned about, right? Um, and they both kind of went back and forth on a, like the standard answer without an answer that politicians give, right? Like mm -hmm. we, we fully understand this is a big deal. We'd love to help. We've got plans in place to help elect us and we'll make it all better without actually saying anything, right? Um, and, and one of them, and I want to say it was Mitt Romney said, just out of curiosity, what's your degree in? And the response was, I'm a liberal arts major. They both turned to each other and did this kind of half smirk, like you, right. you, you've wasted everyone's money, now it's my fault. Kind of, right. kind of typical smirk that gets associated with, with the boomer generation, right? You didn't make good decisions, now it's my responsibility to deal with the good decisions. But the fact right. is, a child isn't expected to make good decisions. They look to those that came before to tell me, what are my options, right. both good and bad? And what category do those options fit into? And if it was so bad, those options shouldn't even be available to be chosen. Right. Like if it was that bad, maybe student loans shouldn't exist for liberal arts. Right. Right. Or maybe, maybe the bar should be set higher for those student loans. Like right. you have to have a higher uh, uh, GPA. You have to have a higher SAT score. You have to have some specialization within that liberal art to a liberal art. Right. Like there are solutions, but it's, we're the ones that created the policy, right? Us and right. the generation or those of us with this same value chain created that. Right. Um, and, and it starts to get really interesting when you look at housing and you start to look at um, the cost of housing versus income and the lack of connectivity to a physical community. If your community is online rather than in person, then the place that you live also is can be virtual. Like I don't need to live in this place to interact with the community that I interact with because they're online. It doesn't matter where I live. When I look to my skill set and the jobs that I can acquire, 
if employers have no long-term um, loyalty to me as an employee, then I don't have the same to them. Therefore, I can start participating in the new economy, which is a gig economy. And if I'm participating in the gig economy and that gig economy is digital, and my community is digital, then I also don't have to live in any particular physical location because I can't afford a house anyhow. Now I, I can create this whole new thing called the digital nomad life, which, which van life falls under. I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen and seen some of the posts and stuff about van life, right? Yep. Where you basically are a lifetime RVer. And we had that before. We've had that for centuries. It's been called gypsy. <laughs> and I'm not disparaging the Roma people by saying that. Right. Um, like I grew up as a gypsy. I'm not Roma, but I grew up as a gypsy. My right. dad sold our house. We built a bus after being homeless for a while. Like it broke down. We were homeless again. Like we went from place to place, from location to location. He did whatever job happened to be there. Um, and eventually we ended up in a place that he stayed. But, but I, I would go back and forth from parent to parent right? Child of divorce. Um, my mom lived in the same town. I'd go back to my dad and it was often a different airport. Or if he picked me up in a car, it was often to a different destination that we ended up. Um, and, and that has now become gone from, you know, a disparaging lifestyle, right? Where you're looked down on by the rest of society to now becoming incredibly common. Matter of fact, you've got a whole generation of people who are looking forward to that as an option. I get to see the world, I get to participate in the economy, and I get to keep my requirement for consumerism exceptionally low, because I have 68 square feet to fill maximum. But are, are they prepared for that? And I'm not, I don't mean prepared living style, I mean prepared even economically, right? A gig career is much more difficult, right? The networking becomes more important, uh, your ability to manage the business, you know, holistically becomes important, tax complexities become important. All of a sudden, we have a whole bunch of, you know, $15,000 entrepreneurs that may or may not be able to manage what that even means sort of from, from a financial perspective. Are, are they prepared for that? Or are we, not at are all. we giving them that education in university? No, no, is not at all. Not even close. Yeah. Not, in a, not in a million years. Yeah. However, they've created that education system for themselves. Mm. They being those who participate in those economic features, I'm not trying to say that's actually age-based. Um, you know, they look to, gen there's been generations of people that have whole swaths of previous generations that have done that, right? They retire, sell their home, buy a, an A-class RV, and then go from RV park to RV park to RV park, right? right. Um, it's just been that end of the spectrum rather than the other. And, and a lot of the reason that was appealing was because you could take the equity out of your home, buy a, an asset, and then you could survive doing that on social security. Right. And, and, I, I have no idea how other places version of social security works, but in the U S it's sub minimum wage. Like it's, it's sub livable wage in almost any area that matters. And yet in an RV, you could actually make that work and see a significant piece of the world. Um, and so when it comes to the gig, gig economy, you're, you're able to get away with a relatively small investment, let's say 40 to $60,000, right? Less than a year at Harvard. Um, and you now have an asset that, that is both your home and car, and you can generally survive on $1,000 a month reasonably well. So are, are you advocating for this? I, I don't, I'm, I haven't no, got the what, sense what whether this, is, this what, makes no, what sense is, or not for you. What I think is interesting is when we look at what's happened with COVID, yeah. right? COVID pushed everybody to work from home. 
In that case, it's no longer participation in the gig economy. It's maintaining a regular job and now being able to do this lifestyle. And now being able to embrace the thing that brings you happiness that's no longer zip code bound. Yeah. Right. And, and while we look at, at COVID as being temporary, um, I, follow all, I follow a lot of these forums. And what I've seen is there's a ton more people now looking at hashtag van life and have embraced hashtag van life because they've had the months at home to complete that project without, you know, just taking away commute time, just taking away being in an office, right? They can find the 15 minutes necessary to make progress throughout the day. Um, and, and what I find interesting is when we talk to CIOs, right? When we talk to the, to the executive level that we talk to, they're looking at continuing work from home programs, reducing office space, right? Reducing time in office and taking advantage of the ability to hire people that live in lower cost of living areas and really being able to focus on the skill set rather than location as the first priority. But not everywhere. So I participated in a uh, CIO roundtable this very week uh, in, from Asia. And the consensus of people in the room were, how do I figure out how to get 120% productivity out of all my people who are working at home because they don't have the commute? That's a pretty distinct difference between what we're talking about here, right? It's, it's saying now that you're not wasting two hours, those two hours should be mine and you should be working far more than you were before. So it's, Absolutely, you know, 100%, yeah. right? But, but then in those cases though, how does it change for, even for them, right? Okay, you're working from home and I don't have the ability to say, even, like, like, even if we bring it back to the US, I don't really have the ability to say it's okay to hire someone who's in Thailand. I work, I work on four time zones, not 24 time zones. Right? Right. Four time zones are critical. Four time zones are important. The rest of your team is contained within one of these, maybe one time zone. Right. It, as I look to add someone, I'm not adding someone 13 time zones off. <laughs> right. right. However, I could very easily add someone three time zones off. Right. Right. I will make it your problem, not my problem. And, I'm, and, and everyone should be okay with that, right? At 10 o'clock meeting, you may have to be on at 7 an eight o'clock meeting, you may have to be on at five. Like the employer didn't choose the location you chose to live. Yeah. I think that's acceptable. Um, at the same time, now within China, if everyone's working from home, they have a density issue that, that is, you know, uh, I would say common, but exacerbated in China, mm -hmm. right? So how do I take advantage of the fact that while I have a, a huge density issue currently, I have a nation mostly empty of people with thousands of small communities. Do I have the ability to enable those small communities? Right. How does the value, how does the value system change when I have to live in San Francisco for the job? Um, you know, the Google engineer that moved to a U-Haul, a converted U-Haul truck in the Google, Google parking lot made the news, right? Um, he couldn't even not necessarily afford something. He just didn't see the return on investment. Like why am I going to spend a million and a half bucks on a, on a tiny little condo when I can spend $4,000 on a U-Haul and bank all the, all the funds. Now you have the ability to attack that value chain from a different perspective. And that perspective is live in Kansas, right? That perspective is be a digital nomad in Bermuda for a year. That perspective starts to change. And really rather than have these kind of two ends of a scale where you have um, drop out and don't participate and full participation and the, the shackles that come along with, with that, you now have this, this amazing ability to go full spectrum. 
if you want to live in San Francisco, you want to be part of that community, you want to be part of that society, by all means, go for it. That is your thing. You now have that option. If you want to live in a van down by the river, that is also your option, but so is everything in between. Mm-hmm. If you want to participate in home ownership, but don't feel like you can because you're stuck in San Francisco, let's unstick you from San Francisco. Let's give you the ability to live in one of the 600 other communities in California that are cheaper, that are simply not commutable to San Francisco. So what did Much the 70s look like? And by that, I mean the 2070s, right? Like, what, what, what do, what's 50 years from now look like? Is it, is it this, this, this uh, amazing uh, opportunity, you know, gig economy where over 50% of the work is happening, you know, in chunks, in small little chunks and small little uh, sort of federated environments. And then you bring it back together, the project management, uh, the, all of the, the big houses, the McKinsey's, the Deloitte's are really just a bunch of, you know, federated project managers who are helping figure out how to, how to, divide and conquer all of this work to get done. Um, and then you've got, you know, the oldies, the 80 to 90 year old people potentially still working, bringing it all together. Yeah. Like I, I, I really, really very much hope so. I hope 2070 looks more like Tomorrowland than mm-hmm. any generation before. Right. Um, I just saw a thing. Jeff Bezos had the largest one day growth in personal wealth anyone's ever had. It was like $13 billion in a day on a Monday. Um, And and I had two immediate thoughts. Um, And they only work for Jeff Bezos, if I'm being honest, right? Because no one's remotely close to him in personal net worth right now. Uh, Nobody public, like nobody who's public net worth. There's there's kings around the world. Sure, sure. Uh, the, The the rulers of the you know the Saudi Arabian royal family might be might be okay. right up there right the the Rothschilds but it doesn't matter so just just Jeff Bezos if my net worth went up by thirteen billion dollars in a day and I understand that's not liquid we're having an, a hypothetical conversation for those right. who are going to make comments it's totally fine I I thoroughly understand that I would do two things or there are literally two things maybe three but start with two things um, first I live in Seattle so the very first thing I would do I guess it's three. The very first thing I would do is I, I would go to the hospitals that have COVID patients overrunning and I would pay off those, the individual's debt for their emergency room stay. That's got to be 40 million or something, right? right. Um, it would add solvency to those people. It would relu- relieve the, the, the debt from the state and Fed that would end up coming in and covering it. And it would, it would um, give some liquidity to hospitals that are struggling right now and maybe help them provide better care. Okay, so maybe 40 million. That, um, I would establish an absolutely massive, absolutely massive um, scholarship fund. But the third thing I would do is I would build Tomorrowland somewhere. <laughs> like I, I would, I would build Amazon City somewhere um, <laughs> with the desire to see how far can I push what the next generation version of a city is. Right. Right. How far can I push... Um, if the goal is to have a wonderful balance of live work life with, with a reasonably low um, carbon footprint, right? A reasonably low ecological impact. How do I design and build a place that has no reliance on the things that, that current cities have, have stacked on top of each other, right? No reliance on, on coal, no reliance on cars even, 
right? How can I, as the world's most powerful logistics and supply chain company, how can I design a supply chain that is ideal for 2050 or ideal for 2070 thinking forward rather than thinking back on how do I manipulate one that already exists, mm. right? How do I design people movers? How do I design for bicycles? How do I design parking lots at the end of a city that allow for rentals so you're not stuck in the location and yet at the same time, you know, maybe you drive into this giant logistic kind of warehouse with an 18 wheeler, you drop the trucks off and then it's, it's electric, um, you know, electric movers that move packages in a really efficient and effective way to where they need to go. Right. But Everything don't you also have to design the citizens when you, when you design a city like that, like all the rest of the world is based on, you know, generations of, of, of families and they've, They've done what they've wanted to do and they've had the freedom to, you know, become a, a pilot, a fireman, a, a programmer. 100%. But it, in that world, you almost have to design the individual contribution, right? To say, in order for this to be effective out of the gate, I need these people to do this, these people to do this, these people to do this in order. Yeah. Yep. I need 250,000 people over the next yep. five years to make this work. Right. Within the context of that, I need... Um, 16,000 people to run grocery stores. I need 12,000 right. people to run, right? But I actually think, we, I, think, I think we're there. I think when you have people, when you have a large number of people that are young, well-educated, and distrust the current value chain, the current system as defined, giving them the opportunity to build something and be part of something greater than themselves. I mean, look at the number of people that signed up to go to Mars with Elon Musk, knowing they'd never see their families again. Granted, totally theoretical, but if only one in 10 actually stepped aboard the ship, you would have accomplished 10 times what he set out to do just with the initial signups. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think if you'd have tried it a generation before, it would have been seen exceptional. Like we would have looked at it as a company town. We would have looked at it as now we're rolling back to coal mines from turn of the 19th or turn of the 20th century, right? right? We would have looked at it in a, with a totally different set of views Whereas they would look at it as I can become part of a company I believe in and help build a whole new value chain future that doesn't exist today. Right. And if I'm being honest, I don't see a solution. If we just continue the way that we are, I don't see a solution that gets us past the carbon bubble. I don't see a solution that allows us to feed and house 10 billion people. I don't see a solution that, that allows, to, allows us to continue to create the innovation we need while also providing for a rapidly aging, rapidly disenfranchised citizenry worldwide, right? Whether, whether the, the percentage of that is higher here or the percentage of that is higher elsewhere, I, I don't think any one place is unique. I think they're just further along in the kind of de-evolution of these massive systems starting to kind of break down and break apart. And, and I think we have to be able to take a massive change. And, and to be honest, I think there's enough capital in, in certain places. I think there's enough innovation capability. And I think there's enough desire from a generation of people that have the, the longevity to see it through to completion. I think everything kind of exists to make that a reality today. Hmm. And I, I, I would love to see it. I would love to see, you know, what with unfettered access to capital and the willingness of human beings to break the value chain that's kind of held us bound to do the same thing over and over again, what could we accomplish? What, what, what change could we actually create? 
Unfortunately, it requires the generosity of billionaires. And I don't know that it's generosity. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's a long view for sure. Right. But you, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, um, Jeff Bezos—they can't do like look at what's going on with Neil. Two trillion dollar investment by by the Saudi the Saudi government, right? Yeah. A significant portion of which comes directly from the Saudi royal family, right? For a future, that's 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 what they've set out to do. Amazon can do the same thing and own the city. You need sixteen thousand. Tell me why it hasn't been successful. Then. Yeah, a couple trillion dollars. Tell me why Tomorrowland doesn't exist there. But because I, I don't think it. No, I I think it's a I think it's a mental breakdown. Hmm. Like I think our generation and the generations before the ones holding that wealth don't don't see it in the same light that the generations after do. Mm -hmm. I don't think, and you know, I mean, it's a big project. So if you were Bezos, you'd have to find someone to lead the project that understood the project. It's gonna be young enough to see it through to completion that can inspire young people that has all of the knowledge necessary to at least get the people together that would have the knowledge, right? You're, you're you know, it's, a, it's an incredibly massive undertaking that I, I think has to be marketed a very specific way. It has to be thought about a very specific way, right? I think it's the um, 140 degree heat in the summer and then in the desert in Saudi, <laughs> that might be a problem. Oh, in, in Neom? I mean, <laughs> if, if, we, if we wanted to dig, in, to dig into Neom, I think part of the reason that it doesn't work is because there are, there's, there's too much money with too little control, mm -hmm. right? I, I think there's too much going out to bid to say, what should this look like? and we're gonna pay you ridiculous amounts of money and it's so much scale, there's no way to rein it in to, to reasonability, right? And right. the goals are too tight. I mean, I, I think it's a generational goal, not a, not a year yeah. goal. That's it, gotta be because foundational infrastructure is hard, right? You can't just start with the building. The building has to be attached to roads and those roads need lights and I need sewer and I need water. Like the, the infrastructure is, is an expensive adventure. And if you're trying to do that for a million people, that's a pretty significant amount of time and energy and effort before Absolutely. the first person even walks in the door. And we're not talking about the Garden of Eden, right? Right. We're not talking about a temperate zone. We're talking about, about a mostly desert zone, right? We're not right. talking about, like, like let's, let's change the location. Think about Canada, right? Right, because you have a tremendously huge border. Yep. Right? You've, I have to assume you've at least flown over all of it. Mm -hmm. Could you pick a five, uh, could you pick a five mile by five mile, a 25 square mile swath yeah. that is reasonably green, isn't constantly covered in snow and ice, like it's seasons, right. and has reasonable access to water? Sure. Yeah. You could pick a hundred. Yeah. Right? I could do the same here in the US. It doesn't have to be the middle of, like, it doesn't have to be, we're, we were going to build a prison here. Instead, we'll build a city that nobody wants to live in. Right. At the same time, it also doesn't have to be, we're going to try to retrofit Detroit. Right. Right. There are, there are millions of miles of uninhabited space on the earth. I can't imagine, like, they've gone through the think tank component of it and gone, well, we just can't find a spot that works. Right. Like there are, there are places in Iowa and Kansas and Indiana that I think would, would bend over backwards that, that are, are fruit baskets, right? You could grow things, you can create the agriculture. You Wouldn't it be it. way easier for uh, Bezos to just buy Walt Disney World, right? It already has the space, already has the infrastructure, just buy it. 
but but it has the wrong. Turn it off. Buy it. Turn it off. Make it exactly what we're talking about here. No, has, no, I don't think it would work at all. Why? I, and, and I think that specifically wouldn't work because you can't get the density that you'd ideally like to have. Right, oh, like like the infrastructure, the infrastructure yeah. density for a forty-five story building is tremendously different than the infrastructure required for for you know five thousand um, single person residences. And I think I you know if you look at Disney, like they don't have they don't have the infrastructure necessary to go super high density. And no, at the but same they have time, the space. I guess all I'm saying is, if you want to start somewhere, there's a pretty significant foundation instead of just you know, a 30 square mile forest where effectively you're starting from scratch. Sure. I mean, I mean, the reality is there's a bunch of dead towns too. Like I could right. start with any number of, of cities that have been failing year over year and acquire <laughs> and do some land acquisition. And the dog, the dog obviously doesn't like Florida either. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Um, but I, I, I'm not saying that you have to pick someplace totally bereft of, of any infrastructure. Right. And, and maybe it would be easier to start with a town of 20,000 that, you know, where the, the infrastructure, like the, the businesses that were there, the massive employers that were there failed. Right. right. And now you have, now you have tons of unemployed people. The question does then become, is it cheaper to start there and deal with the ecological impact of, of what likely failed yeah. or start someplace that's maybe a little bit, a little bit fresher. I don't, I don't know the right decision and cause that's not my field. I'm not, I'm not applying for the job. But what right. I am saying to answer But you may want to send your daughter there. Right. Um, I think we're entering an economic opportunity that's never existed before, I mm. think is what I'm saying. Right? Um, I think before COVID, the options were far more limited than they are post-COVID. And what I'm really hoping is 2070 looks like um, a whole bunch of people that took risks on things that didn't make sense pre-COVID and yet established something totally new post-COVID. Hmm. And I think that opportunity absolutely exists today. Um, and, and I'd really, you know, I'd love the opportunity to, to not only witness it, but, but kind of to be part of it. So Jeff Bezos, if you happen to hear this, buddy, hit me up. <laughs> right? I mean... Carlos, brighter, smoother, warmer tomorrow than the dark dystopian one that that my news media seems to think we're headed towards. <laughs> so this being a very interesting conversation today, <laughs> and that summarizes our thoughts on storytelling. By the way, just to round out the conversation, we just went a different route today. We did. <laughs> We're going to the moon, we're going to Mars, we're going... You know, I was thinking about a, an island, brand new island, just build it there. And, and you don't have to then worry about any politics. You build everything from the ground up. Lots of those. I bet yeah. we can... I don't, think the, I don't think the land is the hard part. Now, water is a hard part. Like we talked about islands before. Water, water is a really complicated and difficult thing to deal with. Um, but if you can solve the water problem, I don't know that there's any place on, on the earth where you can't find a good enough location to build the city of the future. Oh. Sure would be interesting. It's been an interesting conversation. And as always, make sure that you share 
this with your friends, family. Leave your leave us your comments on our podcast or our videos. And as always, my friends, we grow together because we want to leave this earth and our teams to do better. My friends, we'll see you on our next episode.